Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Yes, I've got a Monday Night Football recap. The best part about it is, though, the NFL has never been more unpredictable than it is right now. I mean, yesterday I did start the show by talking about how jacked up things are under the shield. Jacked up in the sense that nobody has any idea. I don't care what anybody tells you. Nobody has any idea what's going to happen week to week. And if they say they do, they are lying. How do I know? You're a liar. Not a felon, but a liar. You're a liar. Well, maybe a felon. And a felon. Or just a liar. Yeah, I could see why you're having trouble with that, Alvin. You probably haven't played that very many times. You probably don't know where to look for that. Anyway, how do I how do I know? Why do I have to? How do I know man? JT, I, I need an injection. I need a pill. How do I know? Why do I have to? Why do I have to? Why do I have to? How do I know? This is how I know. Thanks for the jab. This is how I know that the NFL is jacked up and nobody knows anything about anything because I watched Bacon 45 get his ass kicked by a team that had already given up on its season. That's how I know. How else do I know? Because Aaron Rodgers could not get a game that he had to have against Taylor Heineke and the Commanders. That's how I know. How do I know that nobody knows? I know because the New York football teams suddenly cannot lose. That's how I know. Then last night, it's like the hood man himself. The hood man himself went, oh yeah? Yeah, you think that's weird? You think that's weird, radio man? Why don't you hold this beer so you can see me get completely worked by a rookie head coach? I don't even know his name, but he just turned me inside out, just like I told the entire world that he and they would. And in fairness to the goat, in fairness to the hood, he did warn us. I said it myself. He did warn us. Like the hood has got to be the only person alive who is not surprised with how that game went last night. Because remember, it was the hood who dropped a seven and a half minute, 1,000 word dissertation on how amazing the Chicago Bears were last week. Remember that? And I cracked him hard for it. He knew, in other words, they were exactly who the hood thought they were. Exactly who he said the Bears would be. So given what he said about them before the game, he probably is the only one who is not shocked about how that game turned out. But I sure as hell am. Oh, I am. And I'm guessing pretty much the rest of the world is too. Because the fact of the matter is, I was pretty well convinced that the Patriots had a very solid defense. And I was equally convinced that the Bears' offense was complete and utter ass. And then as much as I do like Justin Fields, he had been struggling mightily. Struggling. And the defensive legend that is the hood and his face-licking son were going to absolutely destroy what was left of Fields' mojo and his confidence. To which Justin Fields himself said, Unfortunately, and I will say unfortunately for a reason, but that was the fields we had all been waiting on. The electric 
playmaking stud who can beat you with his arms and his legs and has the ability to extend plays and make something out of nothing. And he did it on a big-ass stage in the Patriots' house in prime time. And if you say you saw that coming, you are a bleeping liar. Nobody saw that coming. Not the Bears, not Fields, and most of all, not the Patriots. Nor the big head, James Kelly, or myself. As we laid the points and we needed that win to win the weekend for Jim Rome's big head bets. And by the way, felt pretty damn good about that too. I may even give that the James in Portland manual buzzer. We missed so badly on that. Right? James Kelly and I going, we got this, we got this, we got this. We'll win another weekend. We got the Pats. We got the Pats at home. I'll lay the points. James? James in Portland, that is. And what do you know? What do you know? What do we have here? The Patriots have the last thing that the hood himself wanted, a straight-up QB controversy. Straight-up QB controversy. Something that he did not want, but is a creation of himself because he ripped Mac Jones from that game after only three series. Fact is, as hard as Jones worked to get back, it all did start pretty horribly for him. New England was already down 10-0. Mac scrambling, then he was sliding, and then he was spiking. Scrambling, sliding, and spiking a dude in the package. Here was Pinky's reaction on the Pinky cast. Alrighty, watch the end of this run here. Mac Jones with the slide. Watch this right here. The little kick, right? Ooh. D linemen don't like this. You can't hit the quarterback, but yet he can kick you right in the jewels, right? That's why D linemen don't like quarterbacks. Kind of like came in, Ty Cobb spikes up. Anyway, then you got Brisker. Brisker intercepts Mac three plays later. And that pick got Mac yanked out of the game. And then all hell broke loose in Foxborough. Because suddenly, it was zappy time. Zappy hour. Zappy days. And for like 20 minutes, time stopped inside of Foxborough. It was almost like Bacon Jr. was resurrected right in front of our eyes. Zappy walks on the field and immediately starts spinning lasers First, he had that tutty to Jacoby Myers. He gets the snap. It's a four-man rush. He fakes the handoff. It's a deep drop. He winds up long pass far side. He's got a twisting receiver. Diving catch at the five. And he crawls into the end zone. That's a Patriot touchdown. Jacoby Myers caught the ball. Did a 360. Leaping catch. Falling at the five. Crawling in. 30-yard touchdown for New England. They're on the board, and Zappy with the touchdown pass. Zappy hour, man. Then on the next possession, Zappy unleashes another dime up the far sideline to Devontae Parker. Bailey Zappy airs it out. Looking for Parker with a spinning catch. What a catch by Devontae Parker. 43 yards. As he just took it away from Jalen Johnson. I like that energy. Listen to Pats fan absolutely losing their collective bleep. Pats fan foaming fully at the mouth at that point. I'm surprised the entire building didn't just collapse. I'm not even sure they even got that hyped on Bacon 45 back when he was stacking chips and Lombardis. In fact, I'm not sure I've ever heard anybody that excited about anything. Well... 
except for these idiots about the Padres. That's what's in. Or that weirdo when he saw that double rainbow. Whoa. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And if we're all being honest, if we're all being honest, we were all sucked into. I was. I admit it. I loved what I'd seen from that kid. No, not the rainbow hippie. The kid, Zappy. I, well, I mean, I love what I saw from the rainbow hippie. I love what I'd seen from that kid in the two prior games. Loved his moxie, loved his it, loved his vibe, loved that he was going to get Big Head and I, the dub, that we needed to rip the weekend on Jim Rome's Big Head bets. Oh, little did I know what was coming. Especially, oh my God, Justin Fields. He's running all over our bet. Oh, where's the contain? Oh, this guy's killing us. Oh, they're gashing the Pats defense on the ground. The the hell happened? Lil did I know what was coming, especially from the Bears, especially in the Hood's own house in prime time. Next thing you know, we're all on this Bailey Zappy roller coaster unable to get the hell off because what goes up must come down and Pat's fan and everybody else watching experienced the harshest come down ever. We all went from swimming in dopamine to drowning in a hideous, stagnant offense. There were no rainbows. There was nothing. In other words, it went from zappy to sad. (laughs) See what I did there? It went from really zappy to really sad really quickly. Because here's how the rest of the Pats possessions went after that drive. Fumble, punt, punt, pick, pick, end of the game. Meanwhile, Justin Fields just kept running, running. And Chicago kept scoring. And the Pats defense kept getting flat out annihilated, gashed, straight up curb and head stomped by the Bears, who, by the way, were completely unrecognizable to me. Show of hands. Who saw the Bears coming into Foxborough and just bullying the Pats? Right. No one. Nobody. Nobody. I don't know that I have ever seen a Hoodman Coach Pats team get straight run over for four quarters like that. But then again, I've never actually seen the hood man play musical chairs with his quarterbacks like that. Or really just rip the chair out from his starter after only three drives. Hey, add that to the list of reasons to go. I don't know why I've never had that. If you pull somebody's chair, that's a reason to go. Why? Super humiliating and they could crack their spine. I mean, yeah, it's funny. It's funny. But it's a reason to go. The rare thing that is funny, but is a reason to go. Anyway. Anyway. Hey, man, why don't you have a seat? Oh! (laughs) (laughs) Yes, funny. I got a cracked spine. Anyway. Clones, what do we want? 
when we're craving protein or we need more energy. Not bars, not sugary snacks, not energy drinks. No, we want beef, pure and simple. So where's the beef? It's in a package of Old Trapper beef jerky. Old Trapper is not your father's jerky, shriveled, dry, and tasteless. Old Trapper beef jerky is made from lean strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a real wood fire. So it's tender and it's tasty. It's not tough. And why is it so good? Because Old Trapper is a 50-year-old family business known for their relentless commitment to quality. They take smoked beef extremely seriously, and you can taste it in every single bite. Old Trapper is packed with protein, and it comes in four amazing flavors that satisfy all your cravings. Quality smoked meat at its finest that goes with you wherever you go, to the game, to the gym, to the beach. Look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. That way you can see the quality you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. If you don't see it, ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what's your beef? You try to figure out exactly what he was thinking. I mean, it seemed really out of character, right? Really out of character for the mumbler to use his quarterbacks like that. But nope, 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 nope. The mumbler says this was actually part of the plan and they both knew it. So when Mac came out of the game, Bill, was that a medical decision, the timing of the? No. So was that related to the, the interception that was his no. last play tonight? No, we, we had planned to play. Uh, I told the quarterbacks that we were going we to play both of them. So we did. And so was the plan for three series. It just seems when his last play is an interception, it looks like a, a benching for performance. That's not what it was, but you, you, know, you can write whatever you want to write. That's not what it was. Without even watching that, I knew that that was going to be the line. You can write whatever you want to write. You can write whatever you want to write. That's not what it was. It always goes to that. that. That card is always at the bottom of the deck. He plays that card every single time. Anyway, I'm not saying that it wasn't the plan because I don't know. I'm not going to sit here and say that was not the plan. I will say this. If it was the plan, it was an effed up plan. I mean, maybe that was the plan. Maybe he'd have us believe that Mac was not yanked for performance reasons. Maybe he'd have us believe that Mac was not yanked for health reasons. Maybe he'd have us believe that it really was scripted like that. Regardless of situation, regardless of score, we were going to have that guy out there for the first three series. Maybe that was the plan. However, if that was the plan... That sounds a lot less like a Hoodman plan and a lot more like a Matt the Pencil plan or a Joe Judge plan because it's a horrible plan. I would say make that make sense, but you can't because it doesn't. It didn't work. So, you get the quarterback up there, Mac. Mac hits the podium and Mac proed it up because he is a pro and he took the high road. I think, you know, like I said earlier, just part of the plan I think Coach Belichick obviously did a really, really good job explaining it to me, and um, I knew what the plan was, and um, you know the timing's the timing, but we were on the same page, and there's no hard feelings or anything. I, I wish I played better while I was in there, but I'll hopefully have a chance to do that in practice and kind of earn that back, and then you know apply it in the game. But um, we definitely want to play better as a team, and um, we're going to do that. We're all going to work together and put our best foot forward. Foot, 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 feet, foot, feet. See, <laughs> the jungle terrace is real. Foot, foot, feet. Listen, he may have done a really good job of explaining it to Mac, 
but he did a really bad job of explaining it to the rest of us. And before you defenders come in here and say, he doesn't owe you, Rome, or anybody an explanation, that's fine. That's fine. Maybe he doesn't. But don't think that if he does not explain it well to everybody else, there won't be questions. There are going to be questions. Questions as to why he handled his quarterbacks like that when he just got beat down by Chicago. So, no, he doesn't have to explain it. But if he doesn't own it and explain it, people will keep asking questions. That's how that works. And why do I think, and I, and I like Mac a lot, and I believe Mac, but why do I think that when Mac Jones says no hard feelings, considering the spot that the hood put him in, there probably are some hard feelings. I mean, like, totally cool when you hustle back from that high ankle sprain mm-hmm. And in return, your head coach turns an entire stadium and fan base and planet against you. But no hard feelings. It's all good. It's all good. I'm fine. Hey, listen, I understand that the mumbler has forgotten far more football than I could ever know in a million years. But that's pretty much why he absolutely should know how absurd this whole thing is. If you're going to jerk your quarterback out, yank your quarterback. Just don't BS us about it. We all get it. We all like Zappy too. If you want to roll with Zappy, roll with Zappy. Just don't insult our intelligence. And of course, the hood, after he refused to even get into that, of course, he was going to offer zero clarification on what's going to happen going forward. Who is the starting quarterback? Yeah, we just finished the game. <laughs> oh, glad you asked. Let's get into that. Well, who's your starting quarterback now? I mean, that was an absolute disaster. Now who? Excuse me, could you speak up, please? Uh, I'm sorry, what did you say? We just finished the game. We just finished the game. Yeah, you did just finish the game. The game where you started that one dude, let him play three series, watched him toss a pick, yanked him, and then got blown the hell out. That's why they're asking who your quarterback is going forward, Hood. And that's why they all want to know who the hell your quarterback is now because of the way that played out. I mean, hell, maybe for the first time ever, it's not that he's not telling us. Maybe he really doesn't know. I know Matt the Pencil and Joe the Mouth have no idea considering they've got zero experience with this kind of thing or any kind of experience relating to coaching an offense or developing a QB. Like, there is legit QB drama in New England, and nothing feels more backwards than that. But at least it fits right in with this backwards uh, NFL season. Hard to imagine the GOAT handling that thing any worse than he did, because if he really did tell both of them that he was going to play both of them, as we all know, having two quarterbacks means you have none, right? And if Jones knew he was on a short leash... Of course he was going to press early on. He knew he was on a short leash. He wanted to make sure that the hood did not come with the hook. And number two, he knew that the fans loved Zappy coming in. So of course the guy was pressing early on. And he had been out and coming back from an injury and knew he was on a short leash because if we believe the hood, the hood told them both, you're both going to play. In other words, better coach him up, GOAT. Because we know the pencil and the mouth won't. Clearly, Belichick's seven-minute dissertation on the Bears was not enough. 
Hell, he should have talked for 107 minutes. Listen to him enunciate. Listen to him. He's never sounded better. None of that. No. Quite the contrast to how he sounded after the game. A reporter should ask him about Zach Wilson so he can finish his answer by Friday. I've got one more thought on this. And I know I've gone long, but I've got another thought. The Pats do have a legit quarterback controversy. Not like the one that Jerry tried to manufacture or convince us that he had in Dallas. However, if you ask Twitter, if you ask Twitter, the Zap Man want it going away, especially when cameras caught Bailey singing along to Stacy's mom. At that point, Twitter lost its mind and gave the job to the Zap Man. A lot of teams got it going on, but not the Patriots. And clones do better than Zach Wilson on Stacy's mom tweets. You know what, though? If I'm a quarterback in the NFL and I feel like I'm on thin ice, I'm watching that last night, I would insert that into my playbook. Like if I'm, I don't know, Marcus Mariota, if I'm him and I think that I might be in danger of losing my gig, I'd just be starting up with Jesse's girl on the sideline. No way they pull me now. Not with Twitter losing its mind. All right, so I have used antiperspirant sticks for years, but what is amazing about Dove Men Dry Spray is that it feels light and clean on your skin, and it's also quick and easy to use, and it's great for topping up when you're on the go. Now, let me ask you this. Do you feel like your antiperspirant keeps you dry all day? Dove Men Plus Care Dry Spray has an instantly drying antiperspirant formula that can help give you a cleaner feel and offers 48, I said 48, 48-hour sweat and odor protection. Dove Men Dry Spray feels light and clean on your skin, and it is so quick and easy to use, especially when you're on the go. Also, Dove Men Dry Spray contains Dove's unique one-quarter moisturizing cream that helps to protect your skin. It leaves your skin feeling comfortable, and it helps to protect it. Win, win, win. Try Dove Men Dry Spray. Goes on dry, clean feel all day. He is Jeff Perlman. Jeff, it's great to have you on. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks, Jim. Good to be here. Good to have you. So, Jeff, the book is out. The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. It drops shortly. It's not your first rodeo, but I got to ask, when you pour your heart and soul into a project the way you do, every single book, what's it like the day of the drop? What's running through your mind, and what's that day feel like? It's like uh, being on a really awesome roller coaster, but facing an enormous drop and being a little terrible and noticing that your harness might not be a hundred percent on correctly. It's really scary and really exciting and really nerve wracking. And you check your Amazon ranking a million times and you hope for the best, but you expect the worst and then you throw up and you're okay. Perfect. Jeff Perlman joining us. So you expect the worst, you hope for the best. I mean, has the worst ever happened to you, Jeff, on a book drop? Uh, yeah, I wrote a biography of Roger Clemens that absolutely nobody read. So, <laughs> yeah, I've experienced it. The thing is, you always survive it. It's just rough at the moment. You know, always. The moment. 
Always. Yeah. All right, so pretty obvious why you would find this project so compelling, Jeff. I would argue that Bo Jackson is the best athlete I've ever seen in my lifetime. But I know if I ask you why you decided to take this on, you might say that, but there's got to be way more to it than that. What was your motivation behind this project? Well, I mean, I was a kid of the 80s and 90s, and I had the Bo Jackson, the ball player poster on my wall. Um, I, when I was in college, I had another one of him on my wall. I loved Bo Jackson. And I just think there's such a mystique. You start thinking, all right, who's iconic who's never been written about in a definitive, definitive way? And I just, when I came to his name, I kept thinking, there's this mystique about him, this mystery about him that wouldn't exist had he become Eric Dickerson or had he become Sean Green. You know, like, it's the what if of Bo Jackson, the what could have been. And throughout the project, honest to God, like, the one thing I kept getting asked over and over again is, if he'd never gotten hurt, what could he have been? If he'd never gotten hurt, would he be in the Hall of Fame? And I, I can't think of that with another athlete to the extent it is with Bo Jackson. Hmm. Jeff Roman joining us. You know, Jeff, it's purely subjective, but in your opinion, was he a better baseball player or football player? Football by far. Mm-hmm. He was. Um, he could have been as great as any running back we've ever seen. In baseball, he had the physical talent of a Mike Trout or a Dave Winfield. He was that level of talent, but he was so raw and so undisciplined. And he, you know, he should have been using his off seasons of baseball to work on baseball, playing the instructional league, playing the Dominican. And instead, he was playing football. So he never really conquered baseball the way he did immediately at the NFL. Jeff Perlman's joining us. Having said that, what about that first at-bat in the major leagues? For those who do not know, who did he face and what happened in that at-bat? It's my favorite at-bat ever, ever, of anybody. It's, uh, he's caught up to the big leagues in September of 86. He had played double-A Memphis. His first start is against Steve Carlton, uh, at the time hanging on for dear life with the Chicago White Sox, 321-game winner. It's a seven-pitch at-bat that includes a foul ball home run that just went foul uh, outside the, the pole. Um, it was just caught foul. And on his seventh pitch, uh, Carden throws Jackson the slider, and he hits a ground ball to second base. To second base, Tim Hewlett steals the ball, throws it to Steve Carden trying to cover first. Jackson runs from home to first in 3.6 seconds. It's the second-fastest recorded time ever for a right-handed pitcher from home to, home to first. Beat the throw by a mile. Later on, admits someone's like, "What does it mean for you to get your first hit off of Steve Carlton?" He had no idea who he was. Right? <laughs> no idea. <laughs> he, uh, Steve Carlton, who won like three hundred and what twenty four, twenty six games. And yeah. by the way, when he beat that ball out, it wasn't even close. It wasn't even close. The book no. is called The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. It is out right now. You touched on it briefly, Jeff, but why is the book entitled The Last Folk Hero? Well, the writer Joe Posnanski is the one who originally sort of mentioned that idea. Uh, he wrote it somewhere, and I was like, that is so precisely right. And it really applies in two ways. Number one is, so nowadays, an athlete comes along, a Giannis comes along, or Shohei Otani comes along, and we see video clips of them doing absolutely everything, everything, from a million angles. And they could be eating pasta, they could be throwing a, you know, a fastball. With Bo, there's so much we didn't see. Like, there's so much we didn't see. And there's, he, he was referring, Joe was referring to, when he throws out Harold Reynolds at home plate, Royals Mariners, um, I've seen that replay a million times. You never actually see Bo Jackson release the ball because they were only used one camera on that play. So it went straight to Harold Reynolds. So we never actually see one of the greatest throws ever made. And there's just an air of mystique. When Bo Jackson, I have people swearing to God on this. 
that when he was in high school in a game against Fairfield High, he was a Macadori outside Birmingham. He hit a ball so high to left field. The left fielder dropped it, and when he picked up the ball, Bo was already rounding third base. Now, the, I talked to the left fielder, Eddie Scott. He swears it's true. But maybe if you had Twitter, maybe if we had phones, maybe the ball drifted foul and came back fair and an umpire you know, stepped on it by mistake. It's the whole folk hero nature of we didn't see it, but these folk stories go down and, and are told from generation to generation. Jeff Perlman joining us. So it makes you wonder, right, Jeff? Like, I know you love tracking that stuff down, but it makes you wonder because of that very point. There are so many stories and then there's so many urban legends. Like, what if you had to pick one or two, what are some of the most remarkable ones that are true? And maybe what's a story or two that we wish was true but probably isn't? All right, so two of them are, uh, he goes to the Raiders, and uh, Tom Flores is the coach. This is one of his early days with the Raiders. And Flores, they have him run a 40 on grass in pads. <laughs> and he runs a 419. And the, the coaches are convinced they got it wrong. And they have him do it again, and he runs a four-one-seven. So in pads, absolutely in pads, in pads, in pads. He was also not for nothing. He was two hundred twenty-five pounds. He um, the first night game in the history of University of Georgia baseball uh, team happened during Bo's junior year, and so they're lights. It's the first time with light poles. Bo's first at bat, he grounds out, and the fans behind the right field fence are just booing him mercilessly, heckling him. Second time he comes up. And this is 39 days before the natural came out of theaters. Second time up, he hits a ball that slams into the lights. He, he goes out to the outfield again. The same fans who are heckling him start bowing at him in unison. His next two at-bats, he hits, he hits two more home runs. His last at-bat, he doubles, and the stadium boos him. <laughs> and these are the true stories. These are the true stories. I mean... There's more like, I mean, the stories that are like a little hard to believe, like there are stories of him in high school where guys, I mean, guys swear though, like he blocked four guys at once and pushed them all down the field together. Or we had this Nautilus machine in the football training room and Bo pulled the, the gears, gears so hard that it snapped apart. Or there was one where someone, someone told me how much Bo deadlifted and it was like 40 pounds off the national record. And I was like, I don't know. That sounds a little fishy. But then you have like five guys like, no, I was there. I was there. And I'm like, well, baby. Have you ever experienced the flavor of actual live fire cooking? We're not talking about a fire pit in the backyard. This is about the big green egg, the ultimate cooking experience. I know you know about it because the second I got mine and I started talking about it, people were rushing up on me like they knew they wanted to talk about it. It's because the egg is the most versatile grill you're ever going to own. I'm telling you, you can grill, roast, smoke, sear, and even bake. Yes, try a pizza on the egg. It will amaze you. It works. It's incredible. So stop wasting money on grills that you have to replace every few years. We've all been there. We've done that. It gets old. Forget the pellets and the knockoffs, too. Listen to me. Roll with an authentic big green egg. It is a ceramic marvel. It's backed by a lifetime warranty. That's right, a lifetime warranty. It is simple to light. It is easy to use. It works without a power source. You don't have to plug anything in. So with the playoffs and the holidays approaching, you cannot beat a smoked turkey on an egg. How cool is that? And it makes a great gift. And they've got two models that are perfect for tailgating. The best part is you can have it delivered right to your house for free from a local dealer in your community. That's right. Shop online 
at BigGreenEgg.com. Have it delivered to your house for free. That's how I did it. It was an awesome experience. That's BigGreenEgg.com. And yes, you will thank me later. I, I love the Nautilus reference. The Nautilus <laughs> machines back in the day. Jeff Perlman's joining us. His book is called The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. It's out right now. And Jeff, I'm always fascinated by this. You know, you and I have both done this a long, long time. And I've talked to Bo a number of times over the years, but not recently. It's really interesting because and I know you'll back me up on this. He's so enigmatic. There were times where there was actually where he was pretty good about access. Like, he would come on the show and was happy to come on the show, and then there were other times when he wanted no part of that whatsoever. What was his involvement with the book? Did he show up for it? Did he let you interview him? He's super enigmatic. So I early on, I wrote him a letter, and I sent him a bunch of my books. And one day, I'm back in my backyard talking to my mom on the phone, and I see a block number pop up, and I'm like, I bet this is Bo Jackson. And I answer the phone. This is 2020, and he goes, Perlman? And I go, yes. He goes, this is Bo Jackson. And I'm like, Bo Jackson. He's like, I'm driving my, my wife. I'm going to get my wife a chopped salad here near Chicago. And I figured I'd give you a call. And we ended up talking for about 30 minutes. And I was like, this is great. Like, this is wonderful, Bo Jackson. And he basically says, I don't have a problem with you writing the book, but I'm not going to help you with it. I get approached all the time. It just doesn't interest me. And I was like, that's fine. And I ended up interviewing 720 people. But the thing, my great Wait, stop, Jeff. Jeff, did you just said you interviewed 720 people? Yeah, it was a lot. It was heavy. That's got to be your record, right? It is a record. It okay. is a record. Um, the thing that did it for me, though, is... Um, so, Bo Jackson had an autobiography come out in 1990 called Bo Knows Bo, uh, which was written by Dick Schaap, the late Dick Schaap. Before Dick Schaap died, he donated all his audio tapes and transcriptions from all those interview sessions he did with Bo Jackson in 1989 to 90 to the Auburn University Library. So I called up and they sent me, I spent about 250 bucks, which is the best deal of my life. They sent me hours and hours and hours and hours of audio tape from 28, 29-year-old Bo Jackson wow. telling all his stories to Dick Schaap. And much of it, if not most of it, had never been used before. So well, like, what did a 29-year-old Bo Jackson sound like? Was he... I mean, was he sharing information? Was he giving good intel? Like, what was that like? Yeah, there was some stuff. I mean, you know, he talked at length about he beat the crap out of Kevin Seitzer. Like, there was always this, like, I always heard, like, you got to find out about Seitzer. Got to find out about the Seitzer fight. So, yeah, so what Kevin happened Seitzer? with Seitzer? Basically, Kevin Seitzer was the third baseman with the Royals, as you remember. And um, Bo Jackson never liked Kevin Seitzer. And Kevin Seitzer was kind of that teammate. He's a little bit of a gnat and, you know, nagging you and just kind of annoying. And, um, one day they're in the, in the cages underneath the stadium, and Jackson Brief Bo was in a hitting group with him, Bill Pakoda, Ed Hearn. And um, he leaves the line. Bo Jackson has to leave the cage briefly to go to the locker. He comes back. Kevin Seitzer jumps in the cage. And Bo's like, it's my turn. And Kevin Seitzer's like, you left, man. You left. It's my turn. And he keeps – Bo Jackson gets mad at him, and Kevin Seitzer keeps yapping. And finally, Bo Jackson hits Kevin Seitzer by the neck against the wall and has his feet gang- dangling off the ground as he's choking him to death against the wall. And I talked to, like, Ed Hearn, that former Royals catcher. Like, the guy's eyes were literally bulging out of his head. All these coaches run over. They're trying to get Bo to put down Kevin Seitzer. And afterwards, Seitzer's like, um, Bo, you know, hey, man, we're still good, right? And Bo Jackson's like, we're not still good. I don't think so. Do not mess with me again. And here's, you know, Bo Jackson with the Royals, he's a big archer. He would set up a target in the clubhouse 
stand across the other side of the clubhouse and shoot arrows through the clubhouse. And to a man, every teammate I talked to hated every moment of Bo Jackson shooting arrows in the clubhouse, but none of them had the guts to say anything to him because he was just kind of intimidating. Dude, that is unbelievable and terrifying both. Have you ever heard a better clubhouse story than Bo the Archer setting up shop? I mean, yeah, no, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. All right, so um, there's, prob- there's so much more to it. Jeff Perlman, my guest. So knowing what you know about Bo right now and knowing the research you did, and you talked to over 700 people, knowing what you know, do you appreciate him more or less than when you went into the project? I mean, so much more, like truly so much more. I just, he was a kid. It's a cliche in sports, but we think it's really, really true. You know, he was one of 10 kids, single mom. Um, he grew up in a three-bedroom house where, you know, they were all over the floor. He would have nights where he would accidentally roll into the heater because he was sleeping on the floor. He'd wake up with burn marks. He went to school oftentimes in his sister's hand-me-down shoes or just in socks. He had a severe, severe stutter. He was held back a grade. Everything that could be stacked up against Bo Jackson, poverty beyond poverty, was. And the guy just scratched and clawed and clawed and scratched, busted his butt, made it to Auburn. Also, like, principal beyond principal. Was drafted in the second round by the New York Yankees. Insisted to his mom he would go to college. They were offering him. The Yankees could not find him. They drafted him in the second round of the 82 draft. Sent a scout to go talk to him and negotiate. He would not answer the door because he didn't want to be tempted not to go to Auburn. And he was really – Hal Baird, his baseball coach, said, if, if Bo Jackson told you I'll be there, he would always 100% be there. I just I do have a lot of admiration and respect for the man. Jeff Perlman, my guest. His book is called The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson. It is out right now. Jeff, really quickly before you go, and I'm running over, but, you know, that'll happen. I want to ask you this. Do you, you – you are the only author that I know – you talk about integrity – that would ever, ever say something like this. But after the latest news broke involving Brett Favre, you said, don't buy my book. You wrote a book, a great book about Brett Favre, and you said, don't buy it. I'm curious, should we still not buy it? And what did the publisher say when you said that? Uh, the publisher <laughs> – Publisher was okay. He was a little confused, but okay with it. My, you know, my editors were like, you know, I appreciate you taking a stand. I can take it. I just, the book I think was actually fair. It was kind of hard on Favre. I just, Jim, this is what I don't get. You're Brett Favre. You've lived in this diverse world of sports for years. You've seen what it is to grow up poor. You've seen what it is to grow up African-American in America. You've seen the hardships. And you take money that's in your state for welfare recipients in your state vast majority of whom would be African-American, poor, your state, and you have that money, you have no problem with that money being diverted to help build a volleyball arena at your daughter's college, which you're a graduate of. It is so grotesque, and I've said this and I mean it, we should have washed our hands with Brett Favre the moment he was sending pictures of his genitalia to Jen Sturger working the sidelines. Like, we should have been done with him then, but we fell in love, myself included, in the romance of Gunslinger, and him, you know, good old country boy, he's just a gross figure who I have zero interest in. Jeff Perlman, my guest. Jeff, I don't want to take away from the moment because it's about Bo Jackson in the book today. So I'm going to ask you this. Uh, do you know what the next project is? I'm always fascinated by any of your projects. Do you know what the next project is? Or knowing you, have you already started it? I have started it, and I can tell you off the air, but I'm so paranoid that I cannot say on the air yet. I'm just not there yet. Fair so enough. Me. 
So what is the fastest ball sport in the world? Not baseball, not tennis. In fact, it is the sport of high lie, spelled J-A-I-A-L-A-I, originating in the Basque region of Spain and played professionally in the U.S., most notably in the 1980s. High lie is making an unprecedented comeback. The ball reaches speeds of 150 miles per hour. The action is intense. The danger factor is high. Six-person teams of professional athletes play the sport at the Magic City Fronten in Miami, Florida. I invite you to check out all the action Monday and Tuesday at 5 p.m. and Friday night at 7 p.m. Go to HighLightWorld.com or download the free Highlight app in the App Store. The sport with its intensity and athleticism is well worth watching. Check out all the action at HighlightWorld.com. Matches are played similar to tennis with a player or team required to win two sets to win a match. Each set is played up to six points. It is a sport you need to check out. HighlightWorld.com. Monday and Tuesday at 5 p.m., Friday at 7 p.m. So we talked about it yesterday. I want to hit on this once again. The Indianapolis Colts made it official. They're icing the Matty Ice era in Indy after a whopping seven games. Seven games. So on the surface, it would seem like it's pretty surprising. On the surface, it would seem like it's pretty stunning, but really it's not. Not if you've been paying attention because as much of a pro as this guy is and as well-respected as I'm sure he is in that locker room and throughout the organization, Matthew Ice has been killing them on the field. Even if Jim Ursay did tell Ian Rappaport a week ago how the quote and what a quote this is. How the, quote, steely-eyed missile mans, end of quote, he said that, steely-eyed missile mans, leadership qualities were on par with pinkies. And he was raving about how you can never count him out of anything. Suddenly now the organization is counting him out of everything. One week later, a week ago, you can never count this guy out of anything to one week later, now he's out of everything. So from that standpoint, I mean, it would seem like it's a bit surprising from being all in on somebody only a week ago to being all out a week later. Having said that, I'm actually not surprised. I would not have steely-eyed missile manned him, but I do like the decision. I mean, how can you not? Again, this is a problem that this organization has had since Andrew Luck retired back in 2019. They can't get that right. They can't get the quarterback spot right. Nobody has delivered, at least in any significant way. And Ryan, Matt Ryan, is the latest attempt to plug and play under center, and it failed yet again. So now think about it. Sam Ellinger, the man who the team said will start the remainder of the season. I mean, and that's what they said. He gets the job the rest of the way. This is not because Matt Ryan's got that separation of his shoulder. He's done. He's out. Ellinger gets the gig the rest of the way. So the way Frank Reich makes it sound is that decision was made regardless of injury. So either he works out and they found a gem and he's everything they've been saying about him privately, or he falls flat on his face, and then the team plays its way into a top 10 pick maybe in the NFL draft. In other words, win, win, win. Win, win. He's good, they win. He's horrible, they win. Like, if that happens, if this guy can't play a lick and he falls on his face, then they can actually use some of that draft capital in a young slinger instead of the first 
and two third-round picks that they had to give up to get Carson Wentz and Matt Ryan. And considering Ellinger was a sixth-round pick from a year ago, I'm sure most people are viewing him as tank time in Indy. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe not. I mean, maybe there's upside here, or maybe it's a Hail Mary, but you're never out of the fight, right? Maybe there's a blind haymaker or a late Leon Edwards left kick to Kamara Usman's face after trailing badly in a fist fight. I don't know. Maybe you get an A. Maybe you get an F. Just don't give us any of that C stuff. Here's the incredible thing. Like, Matt Ryan's numbers were terrible. Terrible. Like, the worst in the league. Yet, somehow, someway, the Colts are still 3-3-1. Technically, they're very much alive. But they wouldn't have been much longer if they kept running Matthew Ice out there. And they've got to find out whether or not Ellinger can play or not. They don't know yet. They have to find out whether or not this guy can play or if they have to go out there and get a QB1 in the draft. One thing I do know, they can't keep trying to plug and play and patch this thing. It doesn't work. They've tried this since 2019. And the one thing I do know about Ellinger, having watched him at UT, is the cat can move. He can move. And considering this team's inability to block, he is going to need to use those puppies early and often every single Sunday. Again, they're 3-3-1. Three, three and one. The defense is damn good. The defense pretty much won those three games and can keep them in most games. So you don't know what's going to happen here on out. Yeah, I understand that up front, they've got real problems. I understand that they have not run the ball well either. But there is some talent outside. They've got a stud in the backfield. Maybe it works. Fact of the matter is, as good of a dude and as much character as Matt Ryan has, he has been ass on the field. I mean, he pretty much blew their game in Tennessee almost single-handedly. He's been really inconsistent. His ball security is terrible. He's thrown as many picks as he has TDs. He leads the NFL with 11 fumbles. And the former NFL MVP's 5.9 yards per throw was an NFL worst for any starter in the league. But he's not the only mistake for a unit that ranks 30th in the NFL. He's not the only problem. There are other problems, but he is the fall guy. You've got to have a fall guy in the crew. (laughs) Well, they've got one. It's Matt Ryan. In fact, ask Frank Reich. Ask Frank Reich, and he would tell you the organization actually failed the fall guy more than the fall guy failed the organization even though they needed a fall guy. This is another point that needs to be made crystal clear, and I told this to Matt. Hey, Matt, we did not hold up to our end of the bargain here, right? I mean, you came here, and we promised you a top NFL rushing game, and we promised you great protection, and we haven't really, as an offense, delivered on that, and that really starts with me, right? So that's basically you know, my message to Matt is that we thought the marriage of Matt Ryan and his history with our running game, he's had 14 years of incredibly productive, great quarterback play with great play action. So we just thought there was going to be a natural marriage there. It made a lot of sense. So the Colts benched Ryan, but it's almost like Ryan benched the Colts. Ryan and Nicole were physically dead, and it's almost like they killed me. I'm sure that big block of ice, Matthew, felt better hearing that from Franklin. Ice. I mean, yeah, you're right about that, Frank. There's nothing natural about that. It's like that marriage is over. 
That felt like, sounded like, kind of like a bacon 45 type divorce. But on the field. Actually, these guys have a bacon 45 divorce after every single season, don't they? Every year they bring in the quarterback who's the stopgap, the answer. I mean, I feel like I hear this press conference every single year from these guys. And you know why? Because I do. Hey, Philip Rivers, great dude. Great dude. Great presence. Great leader. Consider that a divorce. Hey, Carson Wentz. Hey, never mind. Don't let the door hit you in the ass, dude. Get the hell out. Hey, Matthew Ice. Consider that a divorce. Hey, clones, stop with the tweets and emails about why Ellinger is getting the nod over Nick Foles. Your obsession with this guy is incredible. And you could really care less about whether Nick plays or not, or how he's a better fit for that offense or not. That's not even what you want to talk about. I know you, clones. Stop. What you, you're bringing this guy up, and it's got nothing to do with football. Isaiah McKenzie is my guest. Isaiah, it's great to have you on. How are you? I'm doing well, yourself? Good, dude, good. Listen, talk to me for a minute about your bye week. I'm curious, how did that bye week treat you, and what did you do with that limited time off that you had? Um, it, treated, it treated me well. I just relaxed, you know, hung out with my girlfriend. We went out to, went down to Orlando, then went to Miami, and just got some sun, because, you know, it can get cold up here in Buffalo in the winter, so we tried to get some last little bit of sun as like we could, as we could. Because when we got back up here, we knew it was all business, and it's going to get pretty cold, so... I get that. I like that. I was going to ask you about Buffalo. In fact, everybody I talk to, every bill, Isaiah, that I talk to, I ask, what is it like to live and work in Buffalo where the bills are absolutely beloved? There is no fan base like the mafia. I know that you know that, especially somebody who's from a warm weather climate. What's it like for you to be in Buffalo and work there? Um, it's awesome. You know, when it gets cold, guys don't want to be up here, but we want to be up here because we live here. Um, being here, working here, living here, you know, just doing anything here. It's kind of, you know, it's it's a little slower than other places. You know, me being from Miami, it's a little it's a little different. But I've been here for five years now, and I'm kind of I'm kind of like a Buffalonian myself. So like, you know, when it gets cold, I'm kind of used to it. But for the most part, you know, working here has been awesome. You know, and the bills are doing well, so why not? I love that town. I think it's awesome. It's got to be an amazing experience if you're a member of the team as well. As you point out, you've been there five years now. I'm curious, like, the, the decision to re-sign there, how much of that was about the Bills Mafia and that experience? Um, the Bills Mafia is always awesome. You know, they do a great job every year. Number one fan base in the world. Uh, but, um, you know, they played a big part in it, and as well as us being a good team. And I knew, you know, what the, the guys we had and the guys we brought in, you know, that were going to fit right in. I just felt like, you know, I, I didn't want to be anywhere else. And then even, you know, when it kind of came to crunch time and I had to make it, you know, make a decision, I was, you know, I was on bills, you know, no matter what. And I told my agent that. So it played out well, and um, I'm happy about my decision. So. Isaiah McKenzie joining us, no doubt. So you were inactive for the Week 5 win over the Steelers. I bring this up because you were in the concussion protocol. You talk to anybody in the league. Every player that I've spoken to will tell you there's a 100% injury rate. It's not a question of if. It's a matter of when. So you know this. You know this. But are concussions a different deal? And then how scary of an experience was that for you? Um. I feel like concussions are—they're always important. You know, they've been happening over the years, and I feel like you know, when the tour situation happened, and things like people kind of honed in on it, you know, to put more focus onto it, and then next thing you know, weeks after that, people just started getting concussions. And uh, my concussion was—you know—it was, it was 
it was I mean, everybody saw it. You know, I, I couldn't I can barely move. I can, I was conscious but I can barely move and um you know, I just had to take some time off and you know, as I was going through the test during the week and all that stuff, I felt like I was everything was fine, everything but you know, you know, everything wasn't fine and you know, I just had to, you know, me being a competitor I am, being wanting to be on the field, I also had to think about, like, you know, just I have a whole season to go. I had a whole season left. And I have, you know, a life after football as well. So I want to just take care of my mental before I just get out there. So, you know, the trainers did a great job. The head trainer did a great job. And the coaches just like, hey, just sit out. And, you know, you know, we can we need you, you know, we need you for down the road. And I just set out that game. And I was like, you know, I'm happy I did that. And then, um, yeah, I played the next week. Isaiah McKenzie joining us. You know, you look at the Bills, obviously they've got so many weapons, so many weapons offensively. I'm curious, especially in that wide receiver room, you know, you've got Stephon Diggs, the alpha. You've got Gabe Davis, who you know is up and coming. He's going to get his opportunities. I know you want yours. I know you're competitive. You're a team guy, but you certainly want the ball. Who wouldn't? How do you approach your quarterback and those opportunities? Like, what's your mindset about the whole thing? <laughs> um but the whole thing, I, I've been you know, doing it for years. You know, I've been well, even when Cole Beasley was here, and it was like, yeah, you know, like you said, I want mine too. But uh, you just gotta wait your turn, basically. You know, and I feel like that's what happens for every. You know, Diggs is gonna get his, and then the man behind him is Gabe, and then the man behind him is me. So you know, when the opportunity presents itself, you just gotta you know hone in on that opportunity and take advantage of it, because you never know when the next ball is gonna come. But uh, for the most part, I feel like Josh's been doing a great job sharing. You know throwing the ball around, sharing, giving it to guys, you know, letting the guys, you know, be free and him just being free and throwing the ball around. So I feel like that's helped us a lot. Not one guy's worried about getting the ball. Everybody's getting their touches and things like that so far. So, you know, but when the season gets into crunch time, we know who, you know, who the guys are to come to and to, who to go to. Um, and, you know, Josh has been doing a great job with that. So it's been kind of fun. So it's, it's, it hasn't been a problem in our room. Listen, Isaiah, you, you said it yourself, you have to be ready. You don't know when the opportunity is going to happen. You knew in week 16 of last year, though, there would be an opportunity because Cole Beasley and Gabe Davis both went down, and you knew that there would be opportunities for you. You had an enormous game against the Patriots, 11 catches, 125 yards, and one touchdown. I know you're looking ahead, but if I got you to look back at that one huge day, just that one game, what do you remember most about that day, and what was that like? Um... <laughs> Uh, I think I remember just, I would say, Josh gave me the ball every single time. That's what it felt like. I felt like I was getting the ball every single play. I touched every single play I was getting the ball. And I was just, you know, just catching the ball, you know, scoring touchdowns. Just, and towards the end of the game, I had no idea, you know, I was at 100 yards. I was just out there playing and you know, just being free. But um, I just, like you said, took advantage of opportunities and just was going about the whole thing. And then at the end of the day, you know, 125 yards and one touchdown with 11 catches this is like, you know, for me it would be it would have been unheard of if you know, I you know if I had the, those guys in front of me, those guys never went down. You never you never would have heard about it. But um, it was it was it was awesome, like you know, to get out there and yeah, show what I had. Actually, it was absolutely awesome. That must be you you especially, dude, because you're so upbeat and so energetic. Man, the fact that the ball just kept coming, that must have been the greatest feeling. You know, you, you, like you've earned everything that you've achieved. I mentioned you were not a first-round pick. You had to wait until the third day of the draft to hear your name called. You've had to work and grind for everything 
So, but but you're happy and you're upbeat. I'm curious, what kind of fuel are you running on? Like, do you have a bit of a chip on your shoulder from that experience? Or now that you're established and you're this far in, does that go away or does that never go away? Uh, it never goes away. You know, I, I'm, I'm still the same guy each and every day. I go to practice. I, I practice hard and, you know, I work out. You know, I try to be, I try to, you know, be competitive as possible, even with Diggs, with Gabe, you know, with Josh. I just... I just every day I, I just try to bring as much energy as as I can, bring my you know bring my chip, and go out there each and every Sunday and like hey, I know Dave's gonna do his job. I know Gabe's gonna do my do his job. I want to do my job just as well as they do theirs, and I want to help this team win as well. So I gotta do what I gotta do. So that's how I look at every every day now. You know me me being in a, a starting role, I gotta go out there and put my best foot forward and help this team win like I know how to. So. But yeah, for the most part, you know, over the years, it's, I've been the same guy, so I don't think I'm ever going to change. We're talking to Isaiah McKenzie for a couple of more moments. Isaiah, you mentioned your Florida roots. I'm curious, for that game against the Dolphins, how many people did you bring to that game? <laughs> uh, how many people was it? It was, I think, yeah. I'm going to help you with that, bro. I think you brought 120. 120, yeah. is that true? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's incredible. Like who? Family, friends, everybody you've ever yeah. played with, everybody you've ever played against, everybody in the world. That's an enormous number, man. Uh, yeah. So every year I kind of try to do the same thing. Every year since I've been in the NFL, I've played against the Dolphins. And I probably brought 100. And, at one point, I was bring, in the beginning of my career, I was bringing like 150 to almost 200 people to the game. And then, you know, as time goes on, it trickled down. But it's still almost the same amount of people, same people every year that come to my game. And, um, yeah, about 120. But that's how I do it every year. So everybody, my friends from back home that I grew up with, um, family, um, and things like that. And, yeah, so people yeah. I know now that I've become good friends with, and things like that. So, yeah. I think, the, I think it's great. I think the act that you do that, just the thing, the point that you do that, I think is amazing. There's, when you were stretching, one of your teammates said, so, in other words, you're playing for free today. I thought that was a great line. <laughs> that was really funny. Dude, are you, still, are you still coaching your girls' flag football team? Yes, yes. All right, so, like, what's your message to them, and what kind of culture are you trying to establish within that group? Um, it's, it's a little different. You know, the girls like football team, it's, it's pretty fun. I, I, it's going to be my third year coaching them going into uh, this off season. But, um, just when I first got there, it was like, you know, girls that, I would say there's girls that, there's girls that like football and then there's girls that just into football. And I feel like my girls are just into football. They didn't really like it in the beginning. They just there just to do something. But as we started, you know, as we started, as they started growing in the, and, you know, get into football and they, they got to play the game, they started to like it. And all the girls are, like, on board, and that's all I wanted them to do was just, like, get on board and, and see how fun this game is, playing as a team and playing with each other and playing for one another. And then, like, you know, eventually we'll go into that because they never played, you know, flag football before. It, it just it, My first year was their first year. So they was just learning, and I was just learning how to coach them and how to be, you know, how to coach. And I, and I said this. My first year, I was like, yeah, I see I'm a coach with Dermafields now because it's like, it's a little different, you know, trying to coach people that never played the game. I've, well, it's, it's different because you're coaching people that played the game and I'm coaching girls that have never played football in their lives. And it's 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 different. It's, it's mentally tough. But, you know, going into that second year coaching them, it's, 
it's it's a little different because everybody knows now, you know, what's what's the standard. And, you know, we have a standard now that, you know, they played that first year and coming to that second year, they want to win football games. They want to play for each other. They like me being around. I like being around them, coaching them. So um, I'm ready for, you know, this, this next year to come up and uh, coach them. I like it. And the standard's always the standard. One last thought. You, I mean, you're, you're going to handle your business, but you're going to have fun. And you're going to live a certain way and you're going to have a certain energy to you. You had one of the great gender reveals for your sister. It went viral. For those who missed it, leave me with that thought. Who, if they missed it, how did you do that? What happened with the gender reveal? Um, well, months before that, I told her, I said, hey, um, I'm going to I'll do the reveal when we play the Rams. I'll score a touchdown, and I'll say, you know, you know, it's a boy. And she was like, well, she was like, oh, we're, well, how do you know? Like, how do you know you got to play? How do you know you got to dance? How do you know you got to score? She had all these question marks, and uh, I was like, hey, I'm, I'm going to score, and whatever, whatnot. So I got into camp, and my whole motivation was, hey, I got to become a starter or I got to play more so I, at least I can score on that on that night. And that was my whole, you know, in my mind, that's what I was thinking. Like, I'm going to go hard in camp, do what I got to do to get on that field and score the set down to say it's a boy. And when the camp came, I just, you know, I just went about my day. I kind of forgot about it. I was just playing. I was scoring. And then in the preseason, I didn't play much. So I was like, okay, that's a good time where if I don't play much, that means I'm going to play a lot in the season. So comes to that game, uh, I was supposed to write it's a boy on my shirt underneath my jersey, but I forgot. I went out, and I was just playing. I kind of forgot the whole thing. <laughs> and I scored a touchdown was in the third quarter, and I looked at the camera and the, the first time, and I just yelled into it. And I kind of forgot again. And then the second time the camera came to me, I said, I took out my mouthpiece and I was like, it's a boy. And I remember it's a boy. And then I knew they were watching the game. So that's what kind of reminded me as I was walking towards the sideline and the camera came up to me. But it worked out. And a lot of people didn't know. But it was like, oh, what are you saying to the camera? Like, what are you, what were you doing? And my teammates looked at me crazy until the next morning. And then they saw. Dude, that's an amazing story. Like, for instance, I understand how you can get caught up in the moment. What if you forgot, dude? You set that whole thing up starting in camp. Could you imagine if you scored and you forgot? <laughs> yeah, that's that's what kind of that's what kind of like once I said it and I got to the sideline, I took off my helmet. It was like a sign of relief, like oh my god, like I almost forgot to say it's the boy. <laughs> Incredible. That is something. So the Buffalo Bills are going to host the Packers on Sunday night. One last thought, Isaiah. What about that? Like, you're going to play who's in front of you. Every game is important. But on those nights where, like, when you're in prime time and you know that the entire nation is watching, or even on a Monday night that your peers are watching, is there even more juice in those games? Um, I feel like I, I would say, yeah. I would say, yeah. Because, you know, the Bills over the years haven't had many night games. But we've been having a lot of prime time games. And when we go out there, it's like a different energy. Like, yo, everybody's watching us. We're the only game on TV, the last game on TV. And number one, we do not want to lose this game, you know, so with everybody watching. And number two, we want to show out, you know, because it's just us. It's just nothing else. Nobody else, nobody's watching anything else. Like, they're watching this game, and they're going to bed. So you want to leave everybody with a thought in their head, like, yo, the Buffalo Bills, the Buffalo Bills are good, real good. You know, and I'm pretty sure, you know, a lot of guys have been watching us and a lot of people have been watching us. And we want to just keep that same standard. Like, we want to perform, outperform everyone on top 
They are 5-1. and one. They're first in the AFC East. And, yeah, a lot of people are saying the Buffalo Bills are really good. If they're hosting the Packers on Sunday, Isaiah McKenzie, my guest. Isaiah, I usually don't keep my guest out long, but you're a good conversation, dude. I appreciate you very much. Great to have you on the show. Thanks. Good luck this weekend. Thank you. Appreciate you, dude. Good night now!